Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. That is on page 858 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I do, as I do most Sundays, encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open on your lap today. We'll, we'll be working, I guess, through 14 verses, verse by verse. It will help you to stay engaged, remind you that what we're considering today happens to be God's very Word and the great honor to come and set it before us. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we love for you to take that Bible in front of you and the pew rack is our gift to you. So we are find ourselves uh, with the great honor of studying Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 this morning. Hear now the Word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And be content with your wages. Our Father, we thank you now for this time to study your word. We do believe it to be the word of God. It is your revelation that you have in your kindness and grace given to us today that we might know you, that we might love Jesus, that we might turn from our sin, placing our hearts ever more fully upon our Lord, that he might have our dreams and our ambitions, our affections and love. And so we ask that you help us by your spirit to come and to work in us that we might hear you truly this morning, and that we might leave here more like Jesus because of this word. And we pray for our youth as well this morning, Father, as they are uh, enjoying a time away on this uh, ski retreat, Father. We delight that they too are gathering even now to consider your word. We ask that your hand be upon Pastor Josh and the youth and the chaperones that are with him, that they might hear your word, that he might proclaim it into their hearts through your spirit. And that these teens might be bound together in unity and Christ-like love. And that their hearts may be drawn to you as they further yield their life to King Jesus. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Ever since God called me to the pastoral ministry, I have found great joy in considering other pastors in which God has used. And especially those pastors who have exemplified great courage in the pulpit. I know I've shared uh, perhaps some of these stories with you in the past, but they're so meaningful to me, uh, I think they bear repeating. One of my favorite stories is from Hugh Latimer, the great preacher of old who once preached before King Henry VIII. In fact, as King Henry sat in his congregation, Hugh began his sermon with with an internal dialogue. He said, Hugh Latimer, does thou not Does thou know before whom thou art to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, 
who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speak not a word that may displeasure. But, he continued, then consider well, Hugh, does thou not know from whence thou comes, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present and who beholds all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore take care that thou delivers thy message faithfully. And he did, greatly offending the king. In fact, he was so offended, he demanded a public apology and returned the next Sunday in order to receive it. When Hugh Latimer once again mounted the pulpit and preached the exact same sermon he had given the week earlier. I would have liked to have been there to hear that. It would have been an extraordinary time. Or to consider, for instance, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who at the Diet of Worms on April 18, 1521, stood before the arrayed princes and theologians of the church, including Charles of Maximilian, the Lord of Burgundy, Austria, Naples, Spain, the Low Country, the Holy Roman Emperor himself, in which Luther answered the archbishop when he demanded that Luther recount from his teaching, saying, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. I would have liked to have been there for that. Or consider the great American example, the Methodist preacher Peter Cartwright, who once preached before Andrew Jackson, the President of the United States. He was cautioned before he preached that Andrew Jackson would be joining him in his congregation He began his sermon saying, I understand Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. (laughs) Andrew Jackson reportedly said afterwards, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. (laughs) I would have liked to have been there for that. Or consider the biblical example. A text my family considered earlier this week in our family worship when Peter and John were arrested after healing a man, a crippled man. And they were brought before, the Bible tells us, all the rulers, elders, and scribes, including Annas and Caiaphas, plus the entire priestly family. And they asked him in Acts chapter 4 and verse 7, when they set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I would have liked to have been there for that. But I think I'd probably pass it all up if I could hear that desert prophet preach from his watery pulpit You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Today we consider John's ministry as we enter into the second major section of Luke's gospel. Really from Luke 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 and verse 13, we see Jesus being prepared for his ministry. And John will begin by preparing the people And then we'll see Jesus being baptized and anointed by the Spirit and commissioned by the Father. And then we'll see Jesus go out, much like the second Adam, out into the wilderness to face temptation by the devil. This whole section, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, we're calling the revealed Savior. Because Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is indeed qualified to save us, to reveal Jesus to us. And today we're going to consider how John prepared the way for Jesus. 
we've understood John a little bit. We've heard a lot about him from chapter 1. We, we heard the promise from the angel to Zechariah. We've seen John leap in the womb. We've listened to his father sing praises and his birth. And we left John off at the end, very end of chapter 1 in verse 80. The Bible says, And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And there's where we stopped until we get to chapter 3 and verse 1. And Luke picks up on the theme of John and what John is doing. And for the next 20 verses, and I hope over the next two weeks, we're going to consider John's ministry. Today we'll consider John's manner, his ministry, his mission, and his message. So first of all, consider with me John's manner. Note verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Luke here lists no less than seven rulers to give us the context in which John begins his ministry. He begins in the national scale, beginning with Caesar and going all the way down to the, the local priest over a subjugated people. Many people tell us, uh, especially in our day, that facts of the Bible don't matter, that the historical events of the Bible aren't, aren't particularly important. What matters is the moral truth and the meaning behind it and the spiritual ideas. I simply would suggest to you that Luke has a different idea. Luke is very keen to let us know the context in which John began his ministry, the, the, the tell us what was going on at that time, to let us know that John began his ministry somewhere around 28 or 29 A.D., in fact, of these names of rulers and priests, what's interesting about them is that, that there, hardly any of them are known for anything other than their wickedness. Tiberius was a tyrant. Herod would behead John. Annas and Caiaphas would demand that the Lord be crucified. Pilate would see that it would be done. You see, what Luke is not only telling us is that this happened in history, he's telling us the, the, that the world was in the hands of the wicked. It was at this degenerate time that we read in verse 2. The Word of God came to John. I think there's perhaps a lesson there. That the Word of God can come at any time. And that you and I should never despair about what we see happening in our culture. Never despair about the, the cause of God's kingdom, no matter how dark the days may seem to us. You see, at the very moment when things might seem helpless, God may be preparing for a great deliverance. At the very time in which Satan's uh, kingdom seems to be assured, God may be bringing out a great victory. It's for the very time that Rome ruled the world and ignorant priests governed the faith that the Word of God came to God's people. And God's people responded in droves and masses of people would come out to see John. The other gospel writers tell us all of Jerusalem came out. Some scholars speculate as many as 300,000 people would come out to see John in about his six months of ministry. I find it interesting that he had such a powerful and successful ministry, though he had no website or, or flyers. Right? He had no radio spots or public endorsements. He had no air conditioning or cushioned pews. John had no fog machines and pizza giveaways. And so how is it that people would come to him? How is it was this ministry so incredibly successful? Why is it that thousands of people came to hear John very much hurl insults at them and then warn them of the terror of judgment? Well, I would suggest to you it's because the word of God came, just as verse 2 tells us. It's the word of God that drew them. It's almost like the side of land to those who are lost and see was the word of God to those who had not heard it for 400 years. And the prophet stands up and begins to announce God's word and they come to see him, according to verse 2, all the way out into the wilderness or the desert. I wonder if Luke here is contrasting uh, John with these rulers and, and leaders as they certainly are in positions, uh, places of power and prestige, the cities and the palaces. Not so for John. He's in the wilderness. In fact, we saw in verse 80 of chapter 1 that he grew up in the wilderness. So we don't know much about John's life. We, we don't just see his birth and now he's about 30 years old and he emerges once again. All we know is that he grew up in the desert. Perhaps his parents being old when he was born did not live very long and so John would 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 grow up just all out as a, as a desert hermit by himself. 
And God is preparing him to be a prophet. It's interesting to see God's, how God does this throughout the Bible because God seems to often prepare his prophets through this desert time of preparation. So you have Moses, for instance, I think if someone correct me, I think it's 40 years Moses would stand out in the wilderness. And then you, of course, have, have David and his time out in the wilderness shepherding the sheep. You have Elijah and his time in the desert. You even have Jesus who spent 40 days in order to prepare for his ministry. And then here's John out there in the wilderness in the desert. Mark tells us he emerged this way. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, perhaps I have read too many children's books, but I picture in my mind's eye this kind of dirty man with a beautiful beard um, and (laughs) long hair down his back and never cutting his hair and his leathery skin and just kind of all crazy and in this camel hair outfit without any sleeves. It's too hot out there. One pastor said John's the kind of man who goes hunting for a grizzly bear with a bat, right? And he's just, he's just this, you imagine this tough and this taunt and this very courageous man. Of course, his diet is somewhat strange, isn't he? These honey-dipped locusts, and, and that seems to be a bit peculiar. Now, what I want us to understand is that when we think about John, and he is a little bit out there, and he's a little bit strange, but he's, let's not take that too far and say he's insane or he's lost it. In fact, I think John is being very purposeful in the way he's living. When we consider John's manner, I think what we need to understand is that he is showing by the way he lives that he is a prophet of God. In fact, a prophet very much like one who came before him, a man named Elijah. You remember the book of Malachi, which ends the Old Testament, tells us that before the Lord comes, God is going to send the prophet Elijah into this world to prepare God's people for the Lord. And then we, we saw in chapter 17, uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, that the angel Zechariah told, um, excuse me, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah about his son. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so John is coming, taking up the mantle of the prophet Elijah. Well, it's interesting because you read the Old Testament and there's a story of an evil king who fell through the lattice of his upper chamber and severely injured himself. And he wanted to know uh, if he was going to die or how he was going to be healed. And so he sent messengers to seek favor from the god Beelzebub. And as they're on their way to go talk to the god of Beelzebub to help this injured king, they meet a very strange looking man in the way. And he tells them, in fact, he gives them a warning. And they don't even go on to the God. They just make a U-turn and they go back to the king. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, um, after the king said, what did he look like? The Bible says he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah. You see, what John is doing in the way he lives is he's showing himself to be the, the, taking up the, the mantle of Elijah, the prophet who would call for repentance to turn back from their wicked ways. In fact, Jesus understood this as much. Turn over to Luke chapter 7. Here, here's a beautiful description of John the Baptist, and, and we'll consider it more as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke. But here Jesus has encountered John's messengers after John has been put into prison. And in John chapter 7 and verse 24, John, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And so l- listen to what Jesus says. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Right? So wh- wh- why did you go out there? Why did you head out to the desert? What were you looking for? Reeds shaken by the wind? Right? Something weak and easily to push over? No, of course not. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. He wasn't in luxury. What then did you go out to see? He asks a third time. A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. You see, what Jesus is teaching us is that the way that John was living out there, not in the king's palaces, not in splendid clothing, but out in the wilderness, shows us who he is. He's a prophet of God. A prophet standing in the wasteland, and as a result, perhaps as many as 300,000 people would go out to him to repent of their sin and to be baptized. You see, John's manner was prophetic, which brings us to his ministry. And we see his ministry was baptism. 
In fact, he had a twofold ministry, according to verse 3, to preach and to baptize. So secondly, consider, consider, number, uh, consider John's ministry. You note verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see two things that John's doing there. He's proclaiming, or literally, he's preaching. He's a preacher. And a preacher, according to God's Word, simply means a herald. It is, a, it is someone who receives a message from a king and goes to the king's people and says, Hear ye, hear ye. Here's the word of the king. A preacher doesn't get to make up his own message. A preacher doesn't get to craft uh, his own message. A preacher just faithfully takes the word of God, takes what God has given, and brings it to God's people. And this is what John is doing. And we'll see his sermon in a moment. And it's not very pleasing. And oftentimes a preacher will, will actually preach a message that is not pleasing to you. He's simply trying to give you God's word. And you're not God, and therefore God's going to offend you at sometimes. And we should recognize that, that, that a preacher is not a politician. In fact, during my uh, study of this text, I came across a story during the for- first Gulf War when a man wrote his senator supporting the ejection of Iraq from Kuwait. Well, he received a letter back from his senator, which thanked him and stated the senator's strong support for President Bush's action. Well, the next day, the man received a second letter, this one by accident, thanking him for opposing the war and assuring him of the senator's strong opposition to the war. It's like the politician who said, I have friends who are for it, and I have friends who are against it, and I'm with my friends. Well, it's not so for the preacher. A preacher doesn't think about what do people want to hear. John clearly is not doing that. He's wanting to give faithfully God's word as he proclaims a baptism, the Bible tells us. We call him John the Baptist. He begins to baptize people as people realign their lives, saying, I now belong to God. I've been cleansed from my sin. I'm committing myself to God. One commentator says, imagine the scene as hundreds and later thousands seated along the Jordan. Listen as John berates and rebukes their hypocrisy, warning of judgment and calling for social justice and repentance. Finally, when they were duly convicted, they formed endless lines to be baptized as a sign they were repenting of their sins. You see, John's ministry is to preach and to baptize, which brings us to his mission. Thirdly, consider John's mission is to prepare the way for the Lord. And we've already seen this earlier in Luke's gospel. Again, if you consider verse 17 of chapter 1, the angel says, that at the very end of that verse, that he is going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, Zechariah took that to heart when he sings his song in verse 76 of chapter 1. He sings to John saying, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord, note this, to prepare his ways. And now we come to chapter 3 and verse 4, and we read, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And so John is is gathering, his mission is to get people ready to receive the Lord, to prepare them for the Lord's coming. And he's on his way, you need to get ready. And I think about John's ministry, it reminds me of of what my children used to do when they were younger. And they they knew that daddy was on his way home and perhaps it was a special day and and they wanted to treat daddy with a clean house. And they would be all busy and frantic as time drew near for daddy to return home. But sometimes, in fact often, they didn't quite finish the job before daddy got home. And so they would send one of their siblings, usually the youngest one, to kind of bar the door there as they finished their work. And, And daddy would stand outside for about 10 minutes getting as the children got ready for daddy's homecoming. Well, John is saying, get ready for the Lord. You need to prepare your life. You need to clean up your life. You need to begin to, to work on your heart as the Lord is coming. In fact, you notice what, the, what the Isaiah said here uh, that Luke is quoting from. Prepare the way of the Lord, verse 4. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hills shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And so he draws this metaphor of uh, we need to do some work on the roads. You know, in this day there weren't nice four-lane paved roads. In fact, a road was just simply people, a place where people walked and then they started taking their animals and then eventually they would take their wagons through. And before you knew it, you had this... It's hard-packed ground that served as a road. No one actually built roads unless you were a king. 
See, if you were a king, you just couldn't take off whenever you wanted to. The roads couldn't support your entourage, your, your military that would accompany you, and all the people that would, would your advisors and all that. The, the roads wouldn't handle such a large group. And so if you were a king and you wanted to go on a journey, you would send heralds ahead of time to these towns. And these heralds would say, hey, guys, exciting news. Right? The king wants to come to your town. And so we have to get out there and do some work on the roads. We need to fill in the goalies. We need to remove the boulders. We need to make a broad and smooth path for the king is coming. But what's interesting in this passage is you know what kind of king. Because John doesn't say let's fill in the goalies and let's move the boulders. But rather he says let's fill in the valleys. Let's take down the mountains. Well, what kind of king is this? You notice what he says there in verse 4. Prepare the way of the Lord. Get ready for the Lord. The Lord is coming. And up to this point, God continues to send people to help. He sends deliverers whenever God's people get in trouble and fall into sin and get entangled. God sends someone to rescue them. And He sends Moses to free them from bondage. And shortly thereafter, they're back in sin. And then He sends Joshua to, to help them. And for a generation, they're faithful, but then they're back into sin. And then He sends judges, Barak and Samson and Gideon, who help for a little while. Then they're back into sin. And then He sends kings, David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah. And for a little while, they're doing okay, but then they're back in sin. He said their deliverance is never permanent. And Isaiah knew that the only way that, that God's people would ever truly be saved if God stopped sending deliverers, instead He comes Himself. And so Isaiah, 700 years before Christ walked upon this earth, said, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is just the, the Greek translation of, of how they would uh, use God's name, Yahweh. It's just, it's just a fill-in for the name of God. The one who sent Moses and David and, and, and Gideon. That's the one who's going to come. For, come. He himself is going to come. Every other deliverance is temporary and, and superficial and external. This one's going to be profound and permanent and internal. You see, if John the Baptist is the voice crying in the wilderness, then Jesus is none other than the Lord. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'm not sure Jesus is God. I think he's a good moral teacher or... You know, he's a rabbi, he's filled with wisdom, but he's not Lord. Well, there are a hundred places in the Bible that you could point them to, but this is perhaps no better than any. It's very clearly what the Bible is telling us is that Jesus is coming. He is the Lord, and John is to prepare his ways. You can bring them here. God is coming, and therefore you must get ready. This is what John is doing. He's using this metaphor of these roads, quoting from Isaiah. You see, the, the, no one bu- actually built roads for Jesus. This is just a, a picture. The mountains and the valleys are a picture of human sin. And the mountains of pride need to be broken down, and the valleys of self-pity need to be raised, and the Crooked and paths filled with deceit and jealousy and the rough roads full of greed and disobedience need to be made ready. In fact, you know why? According to verse 6, see what the king brings. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's bringing salvation. But in order for us to be saved, we need to understand what it is we need to be saved from. We need to be confronted with our sin, our rebellion. The gospel is not simply about how to have a good life. And Jesus is not simply a guru coming to give us wisdom or or tips on life. The gospel is how we can be saved. The gospel is how Jesus dealt with sin. But in order to get ready for the gospel, you must first know about your sin. You see, John shows up and he is giving the diagnosis before Jesus comes with the cure. He must face, we must face the bad news about ourselves, John tells us, before you can welcome the good news. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're, you're not a Christian. We're delighted that you are here with us today. And we hope that you feel welcome to come and be with us uh, whenever you feel that. We would have you know that we believe the Bible teaches that every person has rebelled against God. Sometimes that rebellion takes place in wickedness. Sometimes that rebellion is simply a disregard for the one who made us, who demands that we follow him and love him and obey him. And that God, being a just God, a holy God, a good God, will judge sin. Will judge sinners. But because He's full of grace and love, He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. God Himself putting on flesh that He might live a perfect life in your place and die upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God for your sin, not His. Three days later, He rose from the dead. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, 
you will be saved. This is the gospel. And John wants to get us ready for that. He wants to prepare us for the Lord. And when I I think about John's ministry, preparing people for the Lord, this ministry continues. I I don't know, Christian, do do you realize that we can take up the mantle of John? We can continue to prepare people for the Lord. Maybe you can look back on your life and see the Johns in your life, if you will, getting you ready for God. Whenever I have an opportunity to preach on John the Baptist, I always think about the the handful of men who prepared me for Christ. Well, in fact, one of them was named John, interestingly enough, John Cardova, who looked at a freshman in college who on one hand says he's in love with Jesus, on the other hand says he will not repent, he will live in sin. And John, out of great grace and love for me, put his arm around me one day and said, Stephen, you're a hypocrite. You cannot say you love Christ and continue to live the way you're living. And it was exactly what God wanted me to hear. And it was based upon that man, John Cardova, that I was able to turn my life completely over to Christ. Don't you want that kind of ministry? Don't you want to be a John for other people, to live in such a way that makes Christ worthy of loving and worthy of following and worthy of giving your life to? I wonder who in your life that you can prepare for the Lord, that you can pray for, that you can live in such a way that God is compelling to them. And we see John's ministry was to prepare the way. Lastly, consider John's message. Here, it begins in verse 7. We actually get John's sermon. It's interesting how he begins. He does not um, begin as we typically begin. In fact, I, I took note uh, this morning um, of the th- you've received three greetings so far. I don't know if you know this. I was uh, paying attention. And so Craig uh, got up here this morning and uh, Craig said, good morning. And that's how he greeted you. And John came up here and said, good morning. And Chris said, how y'all doing? And so this is how you are often greeted uh, at church. Well, notice John. He takes a slightly different tact. In verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? All of a sudden, this hermit emerges, barefoot, homemade camel's hair clothes, big afro, bugs sticking in his beard, and people gather to him, and he's probably shaking a little bit because he's living off honey, and he's saying, you all are the devil's children. Repent! For wrath is coming. I don't know when's the last preacher that has ever greeted you by saying you all are children of the devil. I thought about starting that way this morning. Um, But I like my job. So uh, here's John who, John doesn't care about his job evidently because he is, he is going to lay it on the line. In fact, John would not only do this, but Jesus himself would say in John 8 and verse 44, you are of the, your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He's called in them the, as a brood of vipers, the children of the devil. Therefore, he says in verse 8, repent. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, repentance is when we turn our heart. And we turn our heart from loving the things of this world and the idols in which we have created and place our heart back upon God. And that change in heart, that repentance changes the way we live. It bears fruit. So do not confuse the fruit of repentance with actual repentance. Repentance takes place on the inside. The fruit is the evidence, the change in life that, that, that takes place once we change our hearts. And oftentimes, in fact, repentance is used synonymously with faith in the Bible. In fact, when Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, he'll gather his disciples together. And in Luke 24, he'll say, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And so very much Jesus told us to do very much what like John is doing. Call for repentance. John tells us there's a reason for repentance. You see this throughout his message. And the reason is that the wrath of God is coming. And God's patience is going to end. And God will one day execute judgment. Note verse 7. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And again, verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, if you do not show evidence of your repentance, you're going to be cut down. You're going to be not just cut down, but thrown into fire, what Jesus would call the lake of fire, hell itself. And for good measure, note verse 17, a verse we'll hopefully consider next week. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John says there are two types of people. There are wheat and chaff. There are sons of God and the sons of the viper, sons of the devil, and some will be gathered into heaven and some will be burned with unquenchable fire. Scripture tells us, friends, despite what we want to think in our day, that God has righteous fury against sin. He is very angry with sin and, and even with sinners. This is not simply a mild dislike by God. This is a, a righteous fury that he has. You want to know how angry God is with sin? You have no place better to look than Calvary's cross, where you will see the full exhaustion of God's wrath as his son is crucified. That's how angry God is with sin. This is why when we reject Jesus, it not only hurts God, but it makes him angry that he would actually put his son on the cross for you, and that would not be good enough for you to actually turn from your sin and embrace him. John tells us judgment is at hand. You know, verse 9, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The axe is right there. Even now, he says, Who knows when it will come for you? You and I, we all have our plans and we're going to graduate this year. We're going to get married and have kids. We're going to retire in 10 years. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I tell you, the axe is on the root. It lies there. And God one day, if you refuse to repent, will strike you down and cast you into an eternity of hell. That is why you ought to repent. Because God today offers you grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. He says, I will forgive you forevermore. I will invite you into my kingdom. I will adopt you as my son and daughter if you will turn to me. Why won't you turn to him? Why do you continue to refuse him? I trust I have a friend here this morning that will not bow their knee to King Jesus. I tell you that God is a holy God, a God of judgment. He calls for us to repent. Now let's be clear what repentance is. Because repentance is not simply conviction or sorrow. It's not feeling bad about something and then not changing. It's not feeling bad and there's no new heart. There's no new desires. Repentance is not simply confession of sin. You know, some people say, I'm sorry, but keep doing it. Right? I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I lost my anger. I'm sorry I cheated. I'm sorry I threw the television out the window. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? But there's no change. In fact, I, I would suggest to you that, that the more you confess and don't change, the more your conscience becomes seared and the harder your heart becomes. Some of you understand exactly what I'm talking about. There is confession and then you're back into sin and you confess it and then you're back into sin. It's not repentance. It's hypocrisy. It's van vanity. Repentance is also not justification. I've heard many times, can't change because of my circumstances. Right? It's just who I am. It's my genetics. I'm a drunk. I'm a glutton. I get angry because of my genetics. I'm Italian. I get angry. Right? I'm Spanish. I get angry. I'm Irish. I get angry. Whatever it is. Others say I, I, it's, it's just my personality. It's who I am. I can't change. Others want to blame other people. They started it. We hear that a lot in marriages. It's, they didn't do this. I wouldn't have done that. It's their fault. I'm sorry I stole at work, but because this. Or I'm sorry I yelled at you, but if you didn't do this. I'm sorry I don't give my money. I'm sorry I'm not a good steward, but if you provided for me like this, God. I mean, this is old as Eden. It's the snake's fault. It's the woman's fault. It's God's fault. It's not repentance. Some people want forgiveness, but are unwilling to change. Will not move their hearts. They'll get baptized. They'll sit in pews. But there's no change in their life. There's no love for God. See, John says there needs to be fruit. There's a fruit of repentance. There's evidence of repentance. You see that in verse 8? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance, if your heart is changed, you'll be seen in concrete action. You'll have a changed life. Before you deal with the fruit, you need to deal with the root. In verse 9, he says that the, the axe is at the root 
but it's going to cut down the tree that doesn't bear any good fruit. There's no evidence. But in order to get that good fruit, you need to change your heart. You need to call it to God. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you, God. You've made me. You've blessed me. You keep me alive in this day, and I continue to sin against you. And I, I am sorry. I don't want to be that person. Will you forgive me? Will you make me new? Will you change me? Will you transform me? I give my life to you. I bow my knee before you. There must be that heart change. And that heart change will reveal itself. There will be honesty where there was dishonesty and generosity where there was greed and humility where there was pride and love and peace and joy. That's the fruit of repentance. You will be seen in how you've changed. I wonder, friend, have you repented? Is there fruit? Is there evidence of your repentance? Can you point to and say, yes, I know I repented because I can see it impacting my life. And by the way, repentance is not just something you do at the beginning of your Christian life. It is something you do throughout your Christian life. Is this not, it is how we start, but it is what, how we continue. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 thesis upon the castle door, he began by saying, all the Christian life is one of repentance. It's all repentance. I wonder, Christian, when is the last time you have truly repented to God? I wonder what right now in your life you should repent of, where your heart is set upon an idol that you need to take it off of. I wonder what God would do. And God says you all have to repent. You need to bear fruit of repentance. And the people are listening to this and they say, well, okay, what does that look like? What does the fruit look like? No, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And so there's a crowd saying, okay, you know, what are, what are we going to do? And John could have said a hundred things about repentance. But you know what he talks about? He talks about their money. Interesting enough, he talks about their possessions. In fact, we're going to see throughout Luke that, that Luke's going to teach us that faith in God, that relying upon God's grace, receiving His mercy, changes how you deal with your money and how you deal with your possessions. In fact, Jesus will say in Luke 12 and verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, you want to know where your, tre- your heart is. You want to know what you trust, what you love. Find out what you do with your possessions and how you think about your money. And so we've already talked about hell. Let's talk about your money while we're at it. All right? We'll just deal with all these uncomfortable things all, all at one time. All right? So John says, okay, let's deal with money. What do we do if we want to repent? Verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. You see a brother in need? If you repent, you can't close your heart to him. The fruit of that change, that repentance in you, is you are willing to sacrifice for the good of your brother and your sister. Sacrifice. I wonder when's the last time you actually sacrificed. You actually gave up so you could not have something in order that another could have something. And then, well, interesting enough, there are some shady characters in the crowd. In verse 12, we see the tax collectors also came to him to be baptized, and that extraordinary, and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And so he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Um, it, he, he says, You're going to stop lining your pockets. Notice he didn't say you need to quit, right? You need to give up this job. He says you just need to start doing it honestly. You know, avoid greed and be honest. And then uh, a third group is there. Um, soldiers are, are literally the police, the temple police, also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not uh, extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. He says, stop using your position of authority for, for greed and abuse. No more intimidation and threats and shakedowns and bribes and kickbacks and payoffs and extortions. Be content with what God has given you. And you could he almost hear them say, well, that's how we make our money. Everybody does this. How we get paid is through bribes and this and going uh, around the corner and doing things like this. And he says, not if you're repented, it isn't. Not for the repentant soldier. Not for the one who's ready for the Messiah. You do things differently. I wonder, friend, are you content? Are you sacrificial? Are you generous? Do you enjoy giving? You know, the Bible says that you're more blessed to give than to receive. A repentant heart is a generous heart because God has become enough for us, because God is worthy of our trust. And so John tells the greedy they need to repent. But interestingly enough, he doesn't stop with the greedy. He also says you need to repent of your religion. I want you to note verse 8. There's a little passage we skipped over, so we draw it to a close this morning. Verse 8, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to ourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So evidently there are people out there with John who are saying, well, we're good. We have Abraham as our father, right? We, 
We've come to see the show. We don't need to repent. We're the chosen people. But this is exciting. There's tax collectors and soldiers and all sorts of people out here getting baptized and some crazy preacher in the desert. And we want to come watch this, right? And so the, the religious people come to watch the sinners repent. And there's John. He's pointing out the sinner's sin. And, and you almost think these Pharisees and all these guys, you know, with their arms crossed and they're kind of nodding their head and they're thinking, you tell them, John, right? You go, boy. Way to go, John. And they're cheering John up. And then John looks at the religious people and says, oh, by the way, you all are the worst. You who go to the synagogue every Sabbath, you who memorize scripture, you who think you are keeping the law. As John knew that religious conservatives can be as far away from God as the most wicked sinner. Just as Jesus told us in the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, God, according to John, can make his children from anyone and anywhere. Read on in verse 8. We have Abraham as our father. Do not say, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? He can raise up, raise up from stones his children. And I don't think that's something that he can do. I think he has something he has done. All you need to do is look around. You and I who have been grafted into God's people, you and I have stony hearts, have been saved by Him, by His grace as He has called us into repentance. And He says, don't say that, that you're going to rely upon your heritage. In fact, He's calling for them to be baptized. Now, baptism was common in this day for Gentiles. When a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he had to, he had to be baptized. He had to wash his Gentileness off. He was unclean, right? It's like taking a bath. And you take a bath when, when you're not fit to be around other people. When you stink, you bathe. Right? And so the Jews had this idea, well, the Gentiles are just stinky, they're unclean, they're dirty. And, and so they, if they want to become followers of Yahweh, they need to be baptized. To, to be baptized is they acknowledge you're, you're not presentable, you're unclean. And so the Gentiles will get baptized. And John comes and says to the Jews, even the religious leaders, everyone in the water. You all need to get in. And they are astonished. This is actually unthinkable, scandalous, because what he is saying to them, to the Jews, is saying, you're just like the Gentiles. You're just as unclean. The paths of Israel have become crooked, and the church have become corrupt, and its leaders have become faithless, and the people of God were not ready for the Son of God. Repent, he says. Stop trusting in your religious heritage, he says. Stop trusting in your baptism, churchgoer, your church memberships. Stop trusting the fact that you walked an aisle, raised a hand, or signed a card. Stop trusting in the fact that your dad was a Christian, your mom was a Christian, your grandparents are a Christian. He said, you need to repent. Do not rely upon your religious record. He's warning them. He's warning them. You're not ready. How many people will stand before God who have spent their whole life in church and are not ready to do so? It's Charles Spurgeon who said, you will be as surely damned by your righteousness if you trust in it as you will by your unrighteousness. This is a warning to us churchgoers. People who make a habit of coming here every Sunday. You should be warned here. Look at your heart. Let everyone look at their heart. It's a warning to me. Let me look at my heart. Am I playing a game? By trusting in anything but my love and faith in Jesus Christ. This is the warning. Repent for God's wrath is coming. You know, Jesus Christ would echo John's words. Except you all repent, you will likewise perish. Have you repented? It was in the 18th century, England was plagued by materialism. It was a, a time of social degeneration. The gap between the rich and the poor was unimaginable. And the Prime Minister Robert Walpole of England was an openly immoral man who publicly mocked virtue and morality. There was moral laxity in the country, public drunkenness, gambling everywhere, cruelty, crime was rampant, poverty was extreme, criminal law was barbarian, and the Church of England was totally inept, as many would openly ridicule the Christian faith. As in this very dark time, that God broke through. He saved three men. One man was raised in his mother's tavern, surrounded by sin. His name is George Woodfield. 
the other two brothers who were raised to love legalism. Their names were John and Charles Wesley. And once they became free from sin and free from religion, they began to preach to England repentance. And most secular historians would credit these three men from saving England from anarchy and revolution. Charles Wesley wrote a song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, he titled it. He said he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed to me. I tell you this morning, by the blood of Christ, He can make the foulest clean. I tell you, by the blood of Christ, He can set the prisoner free. Are you in prison today, friend? Are you chained and bound to sin today? My God, my Savior can set you free if you will surrender your life to Him. You can do that even now. The cross beckons you. God invites you. Come to me, all filled with sin, no matter what you have done or said or thought. My Son's blood will cleanse you forevermore if you will give me your heart. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that out of great love for sinners like me and like my brothers and sisters here, he has come for us. He has come to save us. But in order to be saved, we must understand what we must be saved from. And it is my rebellion. And it is our rebellion. Our sin. I trust, Father, there is one here today that has yet to turn their life over to You. May You, by Your Spirit, teach them Your Word, which clearly says the axe is laid on the root. Tomorrow is not promised. Will You help them, Father, by Your Spirit, even now, to call out to You, saying, God, I've sinned. I am a sinner. I am living my own life, and I am so sorry. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross to pay my penalty for my sin. I believe He rose from the dead and I give Him my life now. I repent. Father, will You not do that today for Your glory and for the eternal gain of my friend or friend here who does not know You? For the rest of us, dear Lord, those who claim Christ, will You help us to continue to repent, to hate sin and to love Jesus. I trust we all have repentance to do. Will you help us to do so through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.